Whoever you are, wherever you are, and whenever it is, you are catching some brainwaves. Coming to you from the banks of the bold and beautiful St. Vrain River, an almost always sunny and never polar vortexy Longmont, Colorado, I'm Ben Kalb, and across the table is the co-host who escaped the frozen tundra of the Midwest by moving to beautiful Colorado. It's Becky Peters. Becky, what's good? It's all good, Ben. I'm loving life, sharing stories and talking to giants, all for our favorite people, busy teachers. And remember, this show is for you. So remember to go to brainwaves.com. We're adding more content every day, not just episodes, but then we'll also be adding blog posts uh, and some of the sketch notes from other episodes. So tell us, give us your feedback. Tell us what's great, what's cringeworthy, what guests you want on, whatever you've got, we want your input. Uh, And we've been getting some amazing input, speaking of, on our mini tri-series on design, starting two episodes ago with Dr. Robert Dillon, where he talked about designing for learning spaces. And then last week, we spoke with the tech rabbi, Michael Cohen, who talked primarily about designing for students. And then today, we're going to finalize this series pretty nicely with design thinking for teachers and school leaders. And helping us round out this three-part series on design in some serious style are the co-authors Alyssa Gallagher and Cami Thorderson. And together, they co-wrote the book entitled Design Thinking for School Leaders. And before you tune out their advice by saying you're not a leader, I need you to take a deep breath and repeat to yourself, I am a leader. Do you have any followers on Twitter? Then you're probably a leader. And if the fact that you're in front of students every day isn't enough to let you know you're a leader and your followers on Twitter aren't enough to let you know you're a leader, perhaps you'll remember the great advice from Stephen Shedletsky who said, <laughs> Accept it or not, you guys are leaders. I mean, you're standing in front of a room. You're in front of people all the time. Um, accept it or not, you're a leader. And a whisper is a shout, Right. So you're constantly being watched by those you are, you are, you have been handed the responsibility to usher people, to usher these students. You're a leader. (laughs) So we're going to show some bias toward action, get right in our interview. During this episode, you're going to learn how design can help us all be better at our jobs. We're going to learn how designing for the edges can help everyone in the system. And we're going to learn some great tangible tips to all be better designers. Without further ado, here they are. My name is Alyssa Gallagher. I have worked as a public school educator for 20 years, pretty traditional. I was a teacher. I was a principal. I was a district administrator. And now I really just work to support school leaders who are wanting to push on what's possible in education. And I love exploring with them sort of these what if, these what if questions to support radical change in education. My name is Cami Thorderson, and I am working in Campbell, California right now as the Director of Innovation and Digital Learning for Campbell Union School District. Been in education for a close to 20 years now. Hard to believe it's been that long. Started as a teacher and kind of followed followed the path. What is design thinking? And to what question or problem is design thinking the answer? Like, essentially, why should everyone think like a designer? When design thinking was first created as this process for problem solving, it dates back to the 60s. And it was originally used as a way to solve what was termed wicked problems. And I would define wicked problems as any problem that is difficult or seems impossible to solve because it might have incomplete or contradictory or changing requirements that are really challenging to recognize. And if you think about it, in education, almost every problem we're trying to solve is a wicked problem. You know, whether it's 
personalized learning or how do we close the achievement gap or how are we meeting the needs of our second language learners? Like all of those are really complex, wicked problems. And so it's a perfect problem solving sort of stance um, to make changes in shifting large systems that are usually pretty path dependent. It sort of breaks us from that, that traditional problem solving path. And I would, I would also say that when you first do design thinking, like the first time I did a design sprint and just kind of introduced to the process, I started walking around the, the world and just seeing things differently. Like, you know, we were at a, a stadium and the women's restroom line is really long. And you start thinking like, what, you know, why you start going, how could I solve this instead of why is this like, this is a huge problem and complaining, you start to go, wow, here's an opportunity. What could, what could we do to make this different? And I think there's, there's that current sort of shift that sort of infects your, everything you do in a way. It's, it's just interesting. Well, my, and my question would be, how do we get other people to see the world in that way? And how do we encourage that thinking in ourselves that design thinking is thinking of ways to solve problems. But in our school, you talk about just this culture of powerlessness that we see the problems, but none of us feel like we actually can fix them. So why do we feel that way? And how do we stop feeling that way? I think some of that goes back to just being so stuck. Alyssa mentioned being very path dependent and very stuck in the way we always do things. And and I think because we're our jobs repeat themselves kind of every year. Like as a teacher, you know, you walk into your classroom, you know, your curriculum is there, you get your stuff out right before school starts, you know, what's coming up and you get into these really habits that you don't even stop to question very, very often. And part of this designer mindset is really stepping back and asking, does this still work? And that's part of innovation too. Yeah. You you know, and I think a lot of us in education, when I reflect back to being a teacher, especially, I felt that culture of powerlessness um, where I felt like I was always waiting for somebody else to have the answer. And what I what I realized as I progressed through my career is, while it sounds cliche, that's this, sort of this idea of like, if not you, who? And if not mm-hmm. now, when, right? So really trying to empower everybody in education to identify problems, no matter how small they are, and then be the person to solve them. Um, Mm -hmm. And we talk in our book about some strategies and ideas, you know, when you're looking for opportunities and you're, you're really doing some problem finding, the easiest place to start is kind of like what bugs you, you know, and if there's something that bugs you, then is there, is there a solution that you can create? Because chances are, if it bugs you, it probably bugs other people. And if you're able to solve even these lower level problems, it builds your confidence and you start looking around and like, wow, everything around us has been designed, which means everything around us can be redesigned. And then you just start to see that it's the world is full of opportunity and possibilities. That's so cool. And, I and I honestly had that written down to to quote back to you that everything's been designed, so why can't it be redesigned? And I even I love how you quote in your book, Tom Kelly, the author of Creative Confidence, um, saying everything in modern society is the results of a collection of decisions made by someone. Why shouldn't that someone be you? And that, to me, I think gets to the heart of 
both creative confidence, but then also what you guys talk about as design-inspired leadership. And I'm curious if, like, you kind of just touched on it, but have you two always been pretty like confident in your creativity? And if not, how do you keep on working on developing that as you move through your profession? That's that's a great question. I don't think I've always been confident in my creative ability from a leading stance. I think that with intentional practice, I've gotten better at that. But I, I also think what has helped me sort of stay more creative is constantly pushing myself out of my comfort zone in the smallest of ways and really trying to challenge myself to pick up something, whether it's a book I wouldn't normally pick up or, you know, a restaurant I wouldn't eat at, but really trying to to keep sort of novel experiences in my life has really, really helped me. Um, And I I keep this phrase in my head all of the time of trying, and maybe it's become a value now, of trying to remain more curious than certain. And what I find in leadership especially is people want answers from us. You know, if we're a teacher or students want answers, if we're a principal or teachers want answers from us, and really trying to resist that um, temptation of having all of the answers and, you know, to remain curious less certain, more curious. I think that's a great practice. And it's one that I have tried to make use of as a leader in our district is that rather than solving something right away to go in and ask more questions. And that's been nice to shift some of that ownership, just like we want teachers to empower our students a little bit more by not always having an answer for them. But how do we do that with our staff and the people that we work with sort of empowering them to solve some things before jumping in and trying to solve it for them has been really, it changed the way people operate. Yeah, totally. So one of the phrases that I'd never heard in your book or that I'd never heard before your book was this idea of an accidental designer. Can you tell us what you mean by that and how you've seen that in schools? We design all the time, right? As school leaders or as teachers, we're designing back to school night and we're designing our first day of school and we're designing all types of things that we aren't being intentional and thinking through like, what do we really want from that experience? And so an accidental designer is just somebody who's making decisions without really doing the need finding or sort of looking through and and seeing what your true outcome is and what you're hoping to get from that. Where if you take some time to really set up your your experience and think through with a little more intentionality, the decisions you make become different. Your design becomes different. It becomes a lot more thoughtful and oftentimes will change your outcomes as well. And so you, again, uh, cite some pretty staggering turnover rates for for principals in our country. And we're just going to define those as, you know, the the leaders right now in our buildings, our administration, there's a pretty high turnover rate. So why, what did you find? Why aren't people staying in that position? And why is being a school principal so hard? <laughs> the, I, there's a lot. That's a loaded question. Yeah, I bet. Um, I bet. You know, I always like to say, like, being a school principal was the hardest job I ever loved. Like, honestly, when I reflect back on my career, it's it's a tough, it's just, a, it's a tough role. Um, and part of it is that I think, there is an expectation that you are going to, you know, continue practices that have been, you know, perhaps put in place by the principal before you, or you can feel like you're this middle manager where you're really trying to do best by your students and your teachers, but you're also caught in with the the district initiatives. So there's a lot of reasons that I think that it's a tough job, but ultimately I think what would help and, and we heard this when we interviewed, we interviewed hundreds of leaders, was this feeling of needing to see progress and know that their progress was um, in the right direction. 
And the beautiful thing about design thinking is because it's grounded in empathy and the needs for your students or the needs of your teachers, if you're solving and meeting a need, then it's the right thing to do. And so I think that that um, giving people that permission to play and to experiment and to meet the needs of their students, their teachers is really refreshing and really needed right now in education. Yeah, well, and I'm so glad you just mentioned that with empathy. Uh, In your book, you say empathy is king. And I think that's couldn't be more true for a teacher or for a school leader. And when I think of the word empathy, I think of my mom. She gets so many shouts out on this pod. She was our first listener too. Uh, she's like the most empathetic person I've ever met in my life. And I'm curious, is empathy something you're born with that remains the same throughout your life? Or are there things that we can do to develop empathy in ourselves? There's actually research to show that some, you know, that some people are born naturally more empathic, but that empathy is a skill and that it's like a muscle that you with intentional practice, you can learn to be become more empathetic or for those around you. Um, in schools, one of the best ways to gain empathy is through the shadowing experience. And, you know, it has become a movement, shadow a student. We suggest taking it a step further, especially if you're in a leadership role. It can be so easy to get out of touch with the experience of what it's like to be a teacher and only get to eat or use the restroom when the bell rings, you know? And so we think it's really important to ground yourself in that experience and shadow a teacher really, you know, get back in the place of what is that like? Make sure that you're making decisions that are based on the needs. So we do, we offer a lot of ways that you can increase your empathy and become more empathetic with those around you. Believe it or not, reading fiction actually has been shown to increase empathy, right? Being able to empathize with characters in a story. So there's, it's definitely a skill and something that can be honed over time. I think that empathy is something we're all really working on. We're more aware of it. Even our students today are needing some practice and empathy. So you'll see a lot of mindful practice practices coming into classrooms right now. That's a huge topic. How do we help kids be more empathetic with each other in the classroom? And like anything, like Alyssa said, it really is a skill that we need to practice. And so I I just think that with our social media and the way we interact with each other right now, that skill is is not being practiced as much as it probably used to be. So I think it's really great that we're starting to see more of an emphasis on that in our classrooms as well. One of the, the cool stories that you showed was about the Swiffer Sweeper and how empathy is a result of observation a lot of times, whether that's following around a student for a day or following around a teacher for a day. Can you tell us a story about that life-saving mop and how it came to be as a result of uh, empathy and observation? Procter & Gamble was looking to, to create new cleaning products. And they identified the area was they wanted to improve how people cleaned their floors. And, you know, they, they decided for the very first time that they would put together a team to really ground themselves in the experience of sweeping and mopping. And believe it or not, they spent hours, they put together a design team and they literally spent hours watching people sweep and mop their floors. They watched videos of people sweeping their floors. They watched, they went to people's homes and watched videos and watching these videos, they noticed a couple of things, specifically with mopping, that mopping is a super dirty job. Like people would change their clothes to mop. They wouldn't come home and mop in their work clothes. They would like change first and put on, you know, like casual cleaning clothes. And they also noticed that you have to change the water a lot when you're mopping. Otherwise you're just spreading dirty water around the floor. 
And so it was a series of observation that they started to gather insight. Um, and one particular, towards the end of their experience and hours of mopping, they were at a woman's, an elderly woman's home, and she had offered them a cup of coffee. And as she was cleaning up, she spilt some of the coffee grounds on the floor. And instead of reaching for the broom and instead of reaching for a mop, she wet a paper towel and she gathered up the coffee grounds using a paper towel. And it was this combination of what they noticed were needs when people were mopping within this other observation of watching, you know, being open to possibilities of watching a paper towel be used, that really the combination of those experiences led them to invent the Swiffer. Um, And even more genius, of course, for them, if you use it, you know that you have to buy the refillable pads. So it, you know, it guarantees them not just selling you one mop, but they're now going to sell you all of the refills as well. It's an interesting story just because it comes about with so much observation and what you notice in something that thinks that it just seems so commonplace. We all know how to mop a floor. Why do I need to watch somebody do it? Right. But if you can learn and gather new insights from watching somebody mop, I have to believe that you can gain new insights from watching and observing almost any type of activity, especially that goes on in our schools. Well, and I, I, I think so often we rely on what people tell us, right? We're like, well, we should go talk to those people and see what they say. And I think there's this disconnect between what we say and what we do. And so oftentimes people tell you things that they think that they do all the time, but they're really maybe not the same behaviors that you would see if you were to observe them do those, those things you're asking about. So it's that like, well, what did you have for dinner last night? Well, I I always eat really healthy, but last night I, we had to stop at McDonald's and the night before that we ended up getting pizza. And so there's this like sort of what we say, and then there's actually what we do. Yeah, and that's huge. And I, I love for that reason the whole you know shadow a student idea. Um, but I loved how you guys brought up the shadow a teacher as well. And I think that could be a really powerful practice, not just for I mean principals and administrators, but even other teachers or parents. Or I mean, I just I, I don't I, I could see how that would be a really powerful practice. Do you guys use that a lot in your schools that you're working with, like the shadow a teacher idea? We, we do, and we almost I would say it's probably one of the the things that where people have the biggest ahas and at all levels of the organization, you know, it's easy when you're at the district office to get out of touch with what it means to be on a school site again, you know, so at every level, um, there's big ahas when you, when you go and you watch somebody in their own environment and really, you know, spend time. The biggest pitfall we see is that, um, and especially with more with administrators, they'll carve out maybe a half hour or an hour Mm. Um, for true observation, we, we say, you know, you really need to carve out a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I saw that, uh, too, was, you mentioned something, I think it was during the Swiffer story, but like you observe until you get bored and then you keep observing after that. And I think that's where, you know, your natural stopping point is the first time you get bored, but you can't, you have to push past that to, to get to the real insights. That's fascinating. So the, I want to bring you guys back or bring us back to, um, design inspired leadership. And that's kind of like the essential question of your book. What if leaders were able to approach their work more like designers? Uh, and I, again, when I read leaders, I really kind of just assume leaders at every level, teacher leaders, student leaders, uh, admin leaders. Can you define for us what you mean by design inspired leadership and kind of just do a, a give us an overview of the five rules. Well, I'll take a pass at, at, 
um, design inspired leadership. And then Cami, if you want to jump in on the roles. So sure. if you think about more of a traditional, and again, like you said, at all levels, traditional leadership, we would say is very teacher or leader centered, right? Whereas design inspired leadership, we would say is very student centered. Um, traditional leadership, traditional leaders, we would say are going to focus more on, they might be afraid to venture beyond what has been already deemed best practices. They might start with constraints or they might fall into like the being slow to act. You know, they're going to put a committee together for a year. They prefer things to fit in boxes. So more of what you would kind of traditionally associate with the work we do in schools. Whereas we see design inspired leadership really starting with our users, our students and being very student centered. Uh, We see these leaders as leaders who are not afraid to go beyond best practices. They're, They're happy to experiment and push on things that have always that we say have always worked. Um, they're leaders who begin much more with possibilities and they lead with this what-if stance. Um, a, they have a bias towards action and they embrace the ambiguity that goes along with innovation and risk-taking. They become comfortable with the messiness that we talked about of design thinking um, and they value great questions and experimentation. So we see all of those as qualities of design-inspired leaders. So our our five roles that we've designed are um, opportunity seeker, which really is about that idea, and we've talked a little bit about that, of shifting from problem solving to problem finding. So so asking more questions and sort of looking beyond just an immediate answer. Experience architect, which is really about designing and curating experiences. Again, we talked about being an accidental designer. But this is more about being more intentional and really questioning how you do things and why you do things and does it still work and really doing some need finding around what what do people really want out of the experience before just designing the experience. Rule breaker, which is, is really one of my favorite ones. And as educators, I think this one is, is somewhat important because we are very path dependent and sort of stuck in our, our ways of doing things. And this one really asks us to step back and challenge the way that things have always been done. Producer, again, bias toward action. That's about really getting things done and that rapid iteration cycle. So often in education, we want to pilot things for six months and we get really invested in solutions before we you know, have really even gone to see if they work. So this is about really how do we more rapidly iterate and try things out so that we're a little more nimble and able to pivot a little more quickly when needed. And then the fifth one is storyteller, which I think is um, kind of a, a favorite as well. And that's about how are we being really intentional in our storytelling? And have we looked at all the aspects of storytelling? And are we really using that as leaders and um, teachers and to really develop the messages that we put out there. So how can we be better at the storytelling aspect as well? I, like Becky had said earlier, I think those five roles or buckets to think about them are so powerful. So I'd love to dig in to the first one that you talk about, and that is opportunity. And I loved the illustration you used at the start about Stitch Fix, who's also a sponsor of the show. They're not, but maybe they will be after you talk. What did Stitch Fix teach you about opportunity and seizing it? I think I think for me, Stitch Fix was one of those things that I didn't know I needed, right? Like it was, maybe I don't really need it. That's probably, um, my husband would disagree. Like she doesn't really need that. But I I used to really, I well, I still do. I really enjoy the shopping experience. I like going out to like actually physically look at things. And so the idea of somebody just sending me five random things was, was like, who, who would 
do that? Like, who really thinks that's a good idea? And then the first time it happened, it was like, I didn't realize what I'd been missing, like how much fun that was, the surprise behind it. And then the whole idea of somebody else, like picking something out for you. And so I think there's just this delight sometimes that we get out of things that are unexpected. So we shut things down sometimes before we really explore the potential or to see where they can take us. And I think that's the beauty of being an opportunity seeker instead of always looking at the negative or why you wouldn't want to do it, but maybe flipping that and thinking about, well, where is the delight in that experience? Where can I find sort of opportunities for that excitement and something different and novel? And Alyssa talked about like really searching out that idea of novel things. And so that I think is is a little bit about that experience or, or you know, about Stitch Fix. I, I think it's delightful. <laughs> Absolutely delightful. So use our promo code Brainwaves to get, okay, there's no promo code. But we need to get one now. You you mentioned Steve Jobs a lot in your book. And I remember the first MP3 player I had was a Microsoft Zune. And it held just as much as an iPod at the time. But there was like a plus and minus button. And it would take you like 10 minutes to get into the album and get the album playing that you wanted. And another example of a person who used design thinking to say, hey, Ben doesn't know that he needs this out of an MP3 player, but he's going to be able to pick this up and be playing any song he wants in three seconds. And that's, you know, that's what a designer does is they, they find your problem before you even knew you had it. So, so well said. I mean, look at all of us now walking around with our iPhones. We didn't know that we needed that. Right. And now we can't imagine life without them. So in also along with the opportunity seeker section and that whole section of the book, which I just loved, you talk about a 90-minute what-if conversation that you hosted with teachers, parents, administrators, and school members all in one room together. And as I was reading it, I was like, I really wish I could be a fly on the wall in that room. How do you talk about what-ifs for 90 minutes without people getting squirrely about it? Like, I really, I mean, how does that work? You know, that's a really good question. And unfortunately, I think it's the whole idea of what if and possibilities, those are conversations that we just don't engage enough in. Um, in schools and certainly at that level, right, with all stakeholders. We kind of pull people together in a room and we just want to, you know, identify our objectives and move on. And what we found was that by really spending the time, it was exhausting, but it was also exhilarating. And a couple of things that we did to make it work was, number one, we didn't just jump into it. How many times have you been in a meeting where people are like, okay, we're going to brainstorm, ready, set, go, like, give us your best idea. You know, and you sort of sit there and you feel like, well, I don't know if I have any good ideas to share, you know, kind of thing. So we were really intentional about setting up the conversation, um, making sure simple things like, you know, you do your best thinking if you're standing up and walking around and giving everybody the power of holding their own Sharpie and their own sticky note, you know, using prompts. We did some warm up activities to get people just interacting with a group and feeling more comfortable taking risks, especially in a, in a group where you have, you know, the superintendent and the teachers throwing out ideas together, right? That can feel very intimidating. Um, we did things like throw out prompts, you know, everybody give us your worst idea right now. And as soon as people get their worst idea out, then everything after that is better, right? Okay. My worst idea is out. I can move on. Um, we did things like throw out, you know, really outlandish questions, of, you know, how would Walt Disney, what would Walt Disney do to improve our schools? Cammie, give me another one of some of the prompts that we use. Um, Kim Kardashian was in there too from the book. I thought that was amazing. <laughs> right, we did. Kim Kardashian. 
Can you explain the the two bucket challenge? I thought that was an awesome way to get people thinking in creative ways as well. Yeah, so we started that. We actually did that as a warm up, and it doesn't matter what type of warm up you do, but when you really want to engage people in their creative space, we have to warm up. We sort of have to warm up our brainstorming muscles, and so we like to use one that we call two buckets, where we'll take a brand, we'll take like a list of brands, you know, Colgate, Harley Davidson, um, Apple, and then we'll take a list of of, prod, of products, baby seat, give me a product, motorcycle, um, sneakers. And we'll just have people um, pick one from each category. And you may end up with, you know, having to come up with a slogan for a Harley Davidson car seat. If that was your product, how would you, you know, how would you sell it? What would your slogan be? And what it does when you use an example or a warm up exercise like this, it really breaks down barriers breaks down barriers in the room, people have a good laugh, gets their creative juices flowing, and then they're ready to move into a more serious uh, brainstorming conversation. The other thing that we found really helpful when you're hosting these kinds of conversations is not everybody's an extrovert, right? A lot of times we we cater to the extroverts um, in these type of sessions. And we found it's really important to allow people some private individual brainstorming time. And so we would give everybody a prompt and say, hey, one idea for sticking out, I'm going to give you five minutes, write out as many good ideas, as many ideas, no judgment, as many ideas as you have. Um, And that really helps kind of get the juices flowing as well. I remember back in the day, Cammie and I both took a class. It was actually an online class from Tina Seelig, a professor at Stanford around creativity. And she would give us the most ridiculous assignments. She would make us come up with a new flavor of ice cream, but we had to give her 200 flavors of ice cream, you know, kind of thing. Like she would always say the first hundred ideas you come up with, there's nothing interesting there. And that's usually when people stop. And so we really try to model that idea of pushing beyond, pushing past the obvious and becoming more creative. Yeah, I think we don't practice our divergent thinking skills very often. So I think that's part of that the improv and the play and the getting people comfortable with creativity is really doing some things where they're having to sort of think way outside the box and and trying to use some of those muscles that maybe they don't get to exercise very often. Yeah, because I think the thing that we forget is that the really good ideas sometimes hide in the crazy ones. Mm -hmm. And so we have to play with the crazy ones um, before we get to the good ones. And one quick story that comes to mind that we'll share with people is there was a team at a Las Vegas hotel that was trying to improve the elevator experience of all things. Right. So they were having this brainstorming session. And one of the ideas that came out, an outlandish idea was, well, we'll hire celebrities and we'll have celebrities ride in different elevators to improve the experience. Like you want to get in this elevator because you don't know which celebrity is going to be in the elevator with you. Well, that's crazy. No celebrity is going to want to stand in an elevator all day. But that that idea prompted the idea of, well, what if we just had celebrity voices? You know, like, hey, girl, you're on floor six. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> something that's doable, you know? And so you have to play with the big ideas that are crazy. And somewhere in there, there's likely a good idea hidden. That's awesome. And I, I could honestly crazy. see Carrot Top just sitting in an elevator all day waiting for you, though. So it's kind of a B-list. I might but... run away from that one. Um, yeah. And that kind of that kind of gets to me, too, about like the the whole experience architect role. So the whole time I was reading that part, I was thinking of this, this, this organization that we sometimes work with called uh, Colorado Education Initiative. Huge shout out to them. They're amazing. And they, they're a nonprofit. They just run around supporting schools in amazing ways. And I went to one of their conferences this summer and we went out 
after a session into the hallway for a break and they had a whole wall of smoothies ready for everybody to to drink during their 15 minute break. And I just thought like everything about this conference I was at, like they had a food truck rodeo, they had yoga for us in the morning. Uh, they gave us bug spray in little bags just in case we needed it when we were going out that night. So I'm, I'm curious about some stories about some of the best experience architects you've seen more like in the education realm, like either in the classroom or for professional development. Uh, if you have any stories like that, you could share with us. I think we are really trying in, in our district here in Campbell, we're really looking, we looked at our back to school event. We just had it last week and we sort of rethought like, what, what, how do we want to do this differently? How are we going to really build a culture and set things to like, we want to start the year different than every other back to school breakfast that we've ever had. So our superintendent invited in a keynote speaker. She built out this like great piece afterward where we, we mix people up. And so we had all of our stakeholders, bus drivers, our, you know, custodians, our, our teachers, our, our principals, we had them mixed in groups afterwards to have some conversations around what we were going to do this year and what that looked like and, and where is our focus. And that, that, that was really powerful. And I know everyone walked out of that at the end of the day thinking this year is going to be different. Hmm. And that hasn't happened very often. I think they walked in thinking, why are we doing this? But at the end, it was very much, we're really excited about this year. This is different than what we've done before wow, I can't see, I can't wait to see what happens next. You know, Becky, I love when you were talking about that conference and I'm going to have to get the name of it because that sounded amazing. Like that they were giving you things that you were like, yes, this is just what I needed right now. And they were delighting you. And one of the things that I think we get so wrong in education so many times is we simply, we forget the fun factor. You know, we just Mm -hmm. take something and that could be super fun and we just like make it a little less than that. Um, and so I think when, you know, being an experienced architect, we can work hard and have fun while we're doing it. And a really cool example that I just saw, um, actually via social media is superintendent Eric Burmeister. Um, amazing. He's doing great work in the Menlo Park city school district for his new teacher orientation. He had them for some portion of the day, they loaded them on a school bus he had the driver of the school bus or a person on the bus, probably not the driver, dressed up as Miss Frizzle from Magic School Bus. And they went, Stop they, it. They no went way. on a tour of their community. I mean, talk about like empathy and seeing where the kids live. And Memo Park has, you know, it's a very affluent area. But then there's also, you know, some, some parts where they're going to draw from less affluent neighborhoods and making sure the teachers knew in a fun way, like this is our community, this is our neighborhood, but they didn't just do it with statistics and sitting in a PowerPoint and loaded them on the bus and they had Mrs. Frizzle take them on a tour. And so I think to me, like that's being an experienced architect. Those teachers will forever remember that and they will have a different view of their community than had he shared stats on a PowerPoint. Wow. Yeah. And you, you have that Peter Drucker quote that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And so there wasn't all the strategy in the PowerPoint presentation, but that's going to develop a culture amongst that group that you'll never be able to beat that. And so one of my questions is like, how do we build those moments? How do we build those experiences? And in your chapter on experience architect, you talk about using a perspective matrix, the four perspective matrix. And I thought that was a really cool way of building more powerful moments. 
Would you, yeah, I didn't ask a question. Would you talk to us about <laughs> what uh, the perspective matrix is and, and how you can use it to be a better architect of, of moments? Perspective matrix really is, and I think this is most useful if you take any sort of event or meeting that you're you know planning for and really trying to look at it from like, okay, what are all the different perspectives that might be involved in this? One that we encountered and I actually encountered at my children's school was class list, you know, that there's a need. Teachers want their class knit. What, what, what's, there's a lot that surrounds, like who's in what class and um, when, when is that information going to be divulged and shared? And so just in one example, you will have, you know, maybe the, the school office staff, they're going to have one perspective on um, how it should be shared. The principal is going to have a perspective on what that experience is like. The parent is going to have an, a perspective on how do they find out who their teacher is. The student's going to have a, a perspective on what that experience is like. And so by, by really trying, it's that empathy you know, piece again, by really trying to put yourself in place of these different people and look at it from their perspective, we believe that you'll get to an experience where you're able to meet the needs of everybody in different ways. And that doesn't mean that everybody will be happy about the experience, but that you certainly can create an experience that gets closer at meeting the individual needs. And too often, um, events on our, especially on school calendar, events just happen because we've always done them that way. And so we don't really take the time to think about, you know, if I were creating and designing this from scratch, much like you would a dinner party at your house, how would I, you know, how would I put this together? Um, and allowing some playfulness in there really helps. And I think we also talk about that idea of designing to the edges, right? Like if you don't know what where your edges are, it's hard to know if you're meeting the needs of all the people in the room. So so looking to see where your your those extreme users are or those extreme perspectives are is is key as well. I, I loved that whole section. I, I really need to pick up that book, that end of average. We've discussed it on a couple interviews now, but um the fact that there's there's no such thing as an average teacher or an average student. And you really have to think about designing for those edges. That that was super powerful, I thought. Yeah. And I don't know if we shared this in the book, but one one story that always jumps out to me um, is just the story around the common potato peeler, like vegetable peeler. And, you know, there was a somebody called into a designer and said, I'm like really frustrated. My wife loved to cook and she can no longer cook because she can't hold the vegetable peeler. She has arthritis in her hands. Um, and so the designer set out to solve the problem for a woman who loved to cook, who had arthritis and the quick fix, like the prototype was went out into the garage, grabbed a bike handle and put the old metal vegetable peeler that we've all had in our kitchen, put that inside of a, a bike handle to make it fat so the woman could grip it. And what it did was it solved the problem for her. She could now hold it because it was thicker. It was soft. It was cushiony. She could peel her vegetables. But what it ultimately did is it created a better vegetable peeler for all of us. Um, and I'm totally blanking on the brand right now. Cami, jump in that we all have in our kitchen. I'm guessing you all have one. No. Stitch fix. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I, I know this story. I think it's, it's it might be OXO or I can't yes, remember. Yes, it's either. OXO. And so that whole line of kitchen yeah. gadgets really came about. They have fat handles. They have the black, fat, cushy handles. That came about because somebody was trying to solve a problem for an extreme user, right? A woman who loved to cook who had arthritis. And yet what it did is it created a better solution for all of us. That's right. Design for one, design for many. I think that's like Microsoft has a inclusion um 
like playbook almost about, you know, if you can design for one person that has this problem, it'll actually solve problems for millions of other people. Okay. So one, we're going to touch on one more role. If you guys have a few more minutes, I would love it. Uh, but the storytelling role, we all know, we've talked about it before, the importance of, of sharing stories and, and telling stories to move emotions and help people remember things better. Uh, and one of the things that you highlight a lot are mistake stories and how important that is to have as a leader. Why is it important to share our mistake stories? And would you mind sharing one of yours with us? I have lots of mistake stories. Um, I think mistake stories are important because they put everyone, it, they lower your, what do I want to say? Your, your effective filter sort of, so that you're not so, it puts you in the same place. It makes you feel approachable. Um, if you're in a leadership position and you can share something with somebody and say, you know, I really screwed up. I, I, I didn't do this well. Um, it, it shows that you're vulnerable and that you're okay with, with being that way. And you're open to, um, listening to, to feedback and it's, it just helps sort of form that relationship piece. I think if, when we're always trying to be right and we're always trying to have the right answer and we feel like we have to be on in this pedestal place where we always have to, to make, you know, amazing decisions, um, it makes you somewhat unapproachable. People are sometimes afraid to go, especially if they have made a mistake, like being able to go to someone and say, I really, you know, messed up on this. I, I made the wrong decision here to somebody who seems to be always perfect is scary. So I think probably we were doing some work with our innovation camp last week and working with teachers around how to take this idea of design thinking and bring it back into your curriculum and your everyday experience with students. How do you make those two pieces sort of mesh? And we had designed this, activity for them that we thought was going to be really amazing and help bring it all together. And it ended up really just confusing everyone. And I could, I could, you know, you can kind of read the room. And I remember that from being a teacher and standing up in front of kids, when you start to see these puzzled expressions on faces, like we are not following you. And I, and I kept thinking, this is valuable time for them. And I am really not doing this well. And I finally had to just stop and step back and say, I don't feel like this is really working. <laughs> so this process that I have put in place with you, um, there seems to be a lot of confusion and I'm not sure, like, can we come together and, and figure out where we're at and how we could maybe revamp this or what we could do to make this move forward a little bit differently. And immediately the room shifted and everybody became a little bit more invested and it became, uh, we took it in a completely different direction. But I think just just acknowledging when something isn't working can be, really valuable and important as well. I wish more people had the courage to do stuff like that. Cause I can't, I mean, we've all been there so many times where you're doing activities and you're like, man, this person should have done a 180 and, and, you know, maybe rethought this activity even in the middle of it, but that's, it's a really hard thing to admit. So I, I, I really appreciate that vulnerability and, and uh, that aspect of storytelling I think has to be, has to be a huge part of it. I always just pretend it's going awesome, and then that I got a phone call and I got to duck out, you know. <laughs> Mom, so oh, that, oh yeah, that's another way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's option B. I think I think all of our listeners hopefully leave hearing from you, and they don't feel that powerlessness feeling that we know can be rampant in our schools. And I just can't thank you both enough for being on here. And 
we all need to do a better job thinking like designers, and that's super true in all of our work. So check out www.leadlikeadesigner.com. And don't forget yeah. Stitch Fix. <laughs> Man, they better awesome. sponsor us after this. Yes. All right. To be clear, there is no sponsorship, nor will there ever be from Stitch Fix. But Becky, let's close up shop. What did you learn? First thing is great news. I found that quote that I talked about last week where everything around us has been designed and can be redesigned. I read it in this book. It was from these ladies. So I'm so relieved uh, because I've tried Googling it and I couldn't find it anywhere. So I feel better about being able to cite that. But really, uh, what's sticking with me after listening to that interview again is the importance of true, deep observation and not thinking that we know everything about a person just because we've met other people like them before. I, I think we assume so much based on the stories that we tell ourselves about the people that we meet in our lives. And I think um, taking a step back and really looking at who they are and, and observing deeply, like she mentioned in the Swiffer story, is pretty powerful. And another thing I want to add is we've been doing design for a little while and have a ton of resources, but um, IDEO, the design firm, has a group called the Teachers Guild, and they do amazing collaborations around the country and have a lot of free resource for teachers, too. So I'll link that in show notes. I just want to give a shout out to them because they're awesome. Ben, what do you think? Tons of takeaways from that episode. I really liked the two bucket challenge. I'm going to try it next time I'm with some kids and need to get their creative muscles stretched. I also really appreciated all that they had to say about when you design for the edges, it helps everyone in between. And just thinking that when you design for extreme users, it helps everyone else. And so as you design your next math class, design it for the kids who are worst at math and it'll help everyone else. So I want to be more conscious of that as I design the podcast and every other professional learning that I'm privileged to do. Uh, I also loved all that they had to say and kind of how it correlated with Dan Heath's power of moments. And I want to think I want to be a moment architect and make powerful moments. We really hope that uh, Vrain Waves is a powerful moment and a peak moment in your week. And if it is, could you share it with a friend? and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Well, thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a great generic time of day.